Hello friends, this episode is a different one than normal. I'm going to be sharing with you a sermon I gave maybe a month or a month and a half ago on Psalm 90. Teach us to number our days. It's all about the brevity of life and how that should change the way that we live our lives today. I really hope that you enjoy it. I hope you learn from it. Uh, before we jump into it, I just wanted to let you know also, big news, the book is out. Redeeming Productivity, Getting More Done for the Glory of God is now available through Moody Publishers. You can find it on Amazon, on Moody's website, or anywhere that you get books. I even saw that it's on walmart.com, which I am strangely excited about. But at any rate, I would love if you picked up a copy of the book, tell your friends, leave a review, help us spread the word about it. If you like this podcast, I know that you're going to like this book because we go deep into both the theology and the practicals of living a God-glorifying, productive life. All right, now let's get into this week's episode. Welcome to the Redeeming Productivity Show. This is the podcast that helps Christians get more done and get it done like Christians. And I'm your host, Reagan Rose. On this show, we examine the world of personal productivity through the lens of a biblical worldview to help you better steward your time, energy, resources, and talents for the glory of God. Psalm 90, a prayer of Moses, the man of God. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and say, return, O children of men. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed, and in evening it fades and withers. For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to join together and to worship you in song, in fellowship, and through the study of your word. Please, Lord, be with me today as I bring the word. I pray that what I say would be accurate, would be truthful, it would be edifying, it would glorify you. And I pray for all of us, Lord, that you give us ears to hear and eyes to see. Help us not to study your word with a desire to merely grow in knowledge, but to grow in obedience too, that you might receive more glory from us, your servants. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So do you know what a plot device is, like in a movie? People talk about having a plot device. So a long time ago, I actually went to film school. That's why I wear berets all the time. <laughs> Just teasing about the berets. Um, and part of that curriculum was learning how to write scripts and stuff for fictional shows or, or movies and all that. And one of the things you do in, in writing for fiction is you have a plot device. It's, it can be anything. It can be a character. It can be a physical object or even just a situation. But what a plot device does is it helps move the plot along. It propels the narrative forward. And they, they add tension and urgency to a story when there's a, a plot device. And probably one of the most common plot devices in movies, at least in action movies, 
is the ticking time bomb. Usually made complete with you know, a, a digital readout so everyone can know how much time is left. And these, uh, these bomb makers are really committed to their craft, so they, they often have a little beep on there too so that everyone knows, yeah, it's ticking. Um, but what that does is, is it's a plot device. It adds tension. The, the hero knows, and we as the audience know, exactly how much time is left before the hero diffuses this thing or otherwise figures out how to deal with it. It adds tension, it adds focus, and it adds urgency to the mission. There's no time to waste. And I think in some ways, there is a built-in plot device to our own lives, a ticking time bomb, if you will, and that's the reality of death, which is a fun way to start off a sermon, but <laughs> this really is, as the last song we sang, this is really, uh, th that song was based on this psalm, and it really is a psalm about the brevity of life. And as we think about death, it's just a reality. We all know it is, but it's something we don't like to talk about. But the truth is, all of you and me, unless the Lord comes back before, are going to die. And even worse news, you're going to die soon. Now, I haven't been talking to your doctor, <laughs> but I mean, in the grand scope of things, our lives are brief. They're short. They're tiny. They're gone before they've even seemed to have begun. And the great drama of this plot device of death is its implications for what we do in this life. How we spend our lives will most heavily be impacted by our view of death. I'll say that again in a different way. How you view death will be the biggest, will make the biggest impact on how you live your life. Let me give you some examples. Different people approach life in different ways depending on how they think about death. Some people, and this is kind of the popular view, is just ignore it. I'm going to live forever. I'm going to be young forever. Um, I'm just going to pretend it's never going to happen. I'm not going to think about it. Uh, and so what do you do? Well, you take big risks. You, you waste time. You just pretend that that bomb isn't ticking. Some people choose to see death as a reason for hedonism, for just indulging. Right? These are the people that'll say, yeah, life is short. And by that, they mean, let's party. They say, life is short, live it up. You, know, you only live once. There's nothing after this is kind of the assumption a lot of times. One life, live it up while you're here. Still others, they see death as a reason to despair. It's scary. You know, they dress in all black, they swoop the hair in front of the face, and they say, oh, what's the point of all this? We're all going to die anyway. And that's sort of, in some ways, what haunted Solomon. If you read the book of Ecclesiastes, he's talking about the reality of death. And, and if death is coming, what's all this for? Isn't this futile? Like, if I work, if I get rich, if I enjoy all these things, if I build a name for myself, a hundred years from now, most certainly a thousand years from now, no one's going to remember me. Everything I built will be dust. Everything will be gone. But that is not how believers in Jesus Christ think about death. If we look at death through the lens of Scripture, if we understand it aright, we will see the looming reality of death not as a source of despair, not as a source of hopelessness, not as something to be ignored or a reason to just party while we're here, but as a source of wisdom for how we live. And in kind of a strange way, a source of hope. So this psalm, Psalm 90, which we just read, uh, you'll notice at the top there, it begins, a prayer of Moses, the man of God. I think we don't tend to think about uh, Moses as a psalm writer, right? Like you might think about David or, or, or Asaph or some of these other things, but like Moses, Psalm of Moses. Well, that's for good reason. This is the only psalm of Moses in the Psalter. It's the one and only. And that also means it's the oldest psalm in your psalm book. So a little something to store away for Bible trivia. And actually, Moses was a bit of a songwriter. You know, you tend to picture David with the harp in one hand, maybe a sword in the other, but Moses also wrote songs. Back in Exodus 15, 
he wrote a song called The Song of the Sea, is traditionally how it's referred to. And this is, he sung this as a praise to God after he had delivered the people through the parting of the Red Sea. He had another one in Deuteronomy 32, uh, which it, we often call the Song of Moses. He wrote and delivered that to the people just after the Lord had revealed to Moses that he was going to die, that he was not going to get to enter the promised land. And so then he commissioned Joshua to be his replacement. And right after that, he sings this song, which, which extols God, the wonderful works he did for his people, but also is a warning for the people, reminding them of what happened when they had rebelled in the past, when they had rebelled and, and had to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. So yeah, Moses wrote songs. But this one here is a prayer, as the, as the superscript says there. It's a prayer. So it means it's addressed, the whole thing is addressed to God. But it's not just a prayer for Moses, it's a prayer of intercession. He's praying on behalf of the people of God. In this context, on behalf of the people of Israel. He's lifting a prayer up to God for them. This is, uh, if you don't know this, the book of Psalms is actually five books. Um, a lot of your Bibles will say it. If you see at the top of Psalm 90, some of yours will say book four. And so it was divided up into these five books, and they, they traditionally followed some different themes for each book. So this psalm kicks off book four of the Psalter, and most of the psalms in this book emphasize the brokenness of the world, especially human mortality, um, but it puts the context of it around God's sovereignty, and that though we suffer and we die and life is hard. God is eternal, and he is in control, and it's in him we find our hope. When did he write this psalm? We don't really know. It doesn't say. If I had to venture a guess, I'd say maybe when uh, they were wandering the wilderness. There's some indication here um, about midway through when he's, he's asking the Lord to, you know, return to them and to show them favor again. So maybe he's asking him to turn away from, from the punishment they were under. But we don't know for sure. But here's what we do know. This is a psalm about the brevity of our life before God and how we can find in that brevity wisdom to live rightly before him and leave lives that are both meaningful and God-glorifying. So here's how we're going to attack this. Um, we're going to do this in three parts. So we're going to do first the eternality of God, and that's going to be verses 1 through 2. Then we're going to do the brevity of man, which is verses 3 through 10. And finally, we will look at the, uh, the beginning of wisdom, and that's 11 through 17. So if you're taking notes, there's your cheat sheet. So let's begin. The eternality of God, part one, verses one and two. So I, I mentioned a little bit earlier that people love to say life is short, and there's often kind of like a subtext that there's implications. They say life is short, therefore live it up. But when people say life is short, I always, I always want to say, compared to what? Compared to what? Compared to a fruit fly? We're doing good. <laughs> Most of us. <laughs> Let's live like, what, 24 hours and they're gone? But life is short when compared to God. And that's how Moses kicks this thing off with the eternality of God. His prayer, really, it begins with praise. It begins with extolling God's eternality and his care for his people. Look at verse 1. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Verse 2. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Lord, you've been our dwelling place in all generations. I was recently reading a book, and it was kind of like a memoir of sorts. And this guy is talking about when he was a child, across from his family's home, there was a huge tree. It was like a hundred and something year old oak. And the family lovingly called it the thinking tree. And whenever this guy, when he was a boy, would be distraught or confused or, or just needed to think, he'd go across the street and he'd sit under this big tree. And as he describes it, he talks about how he would find comfort in this tree because it was just ancient compared to him. It seemed almost immovable, like it transcended time, like it had been there forever and always would be there. And so with all the vicissitudes and the, the confusion of life, he could go there and find something solid, something immovable 
to lean against. But as he recounts in the book, he goes back later in life as an adult, and the tree's gone. It had been chopped down or it had died, maybe to make room for some neighborhood. But it's gone. But you can understand that desire for something firm and fixed, right? And here's the thing. God is a constant. God is an everlasting source of refuge. When Moses says from generation to generation, he has been their source of refuge and then emphasizes God's eternality. That's his point. God's timeline is infinite. And as we, these little brackets of these generations of the people of God, they're so short in comparison to him. But in all of it, he's the constant. He's the everlasting source of refuge. He's one you can always turn to that will never fail and will never be chopped down like that tree. In fact, maybe a better word to refer to God is as a rock. And that's exactly what the scriptures say. Moses, actually in that song of of Moses I talked about in Deuteronomy 32, he calls him the rock. His work is perfect. That's our God. And I think sometimes we can kind of drag down God to the level of our problems, at least in our thinking, right? Sometimes something that's a big deal to us, something we're going through, we're suffering, or, or there's a tough decision, and we're thinking, this is really, really hard. This is a big deal. You've got to understand, to the eternal God, it's not a big deal. It's a big deal in the sense that he cares for you, but in terms of his ability to overcome that, is nothing. He's the infinite, all-powerful God of the universe. Resolving our problems are a small matter to the God who is from everlasting to everlasting. He's a great refuge. In, in verse 2, you saw there, he says, Before the mountains were brought forth, wherever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. I love that the song that we just sang, too. It emphasizes this as well. Before there were even mountains, before there was anything, before this ancient world of ours ever brought forth any life, God was there. God was there. It's interesting, the, the previous verse where he said, in every generation, literally in, in the Hebrew, it says, from generations and generations, which kind of parallels this from everlasting to everlasting. And, and here's one way I like, to, I like to think about this. It's, if you try to wrap your head around the eternality of God, you're going um, to need some aspirin. <laughs> you're not going to do it. We don't know anything that's eternal because we had a beginning. But here's how I like to think about it um, with math. So I went to seminary almost chiefly uh, because there was no math curriculum. <laughs> but some, some math is helpful here. I guess this is geometry. I don't know. But um, you know when, when you were like plotting stuff, lines and things? So a, a line segment is usually what we think about when we think of a line. It has a beginning and an end, and it's connected, right? Technically, in math, a line is an infinite line. It has no beginning, no end. And then a ray would be, uh, it has a beginning point, and then it goes off infinitely in one direction. You would represent that with a little arrow on the end saying it goes off forever that way. If you were thinking about us compared to God with regard to our timeliness, God would be the line. He is from everlasting, infinitely that way in the past, to everlasting, infinitely that way in the future. That's incomprehensible to me. Let's all go home and take a nap because, and just think about that. But we are also everlasting in one direction. And what I mean is we had a beginning. There's a point. You were born. Hopefully, most of you were born. But we do go on forever. There is death, but in terms of our, um, our, our being, we will go on forever. Everyone is an eternal being. Everyone is going to go forever into the future. Now, some will rise again to judgment. Some will rise again to eternal life. But that is the big difference between us and God. He is from everlasting to everlasting. And the important thing Moses is emphasizing here is that he's always been there and he always will be there. Before the mountains even peaked up or the earth was formed, he is God. And I love that too. It doesn't say he was God. It doesn't say he will be God or he happens to be God right now. 
It's that he is the God who transcends verb tense. He is. In fact, this is how he introduced himself to Moses, the author of this psalm, when he first met him. There on the windswept plains of Moab in that burning bush that wouldn't burn up. Moses, he's telling Moses, you are going to go and talk to Pharaoh and tell him to let my people go. And Moses says, who should I say sent me? Tell him, I am has sent you. Yahweh, I am. He is. That's a much shorter way to say from everlasting to everlasting. But that's our God. He's the eternally existent one. He's the timeless one. He transcends our problems and every generation of saint from the Old Testament to the New Testament till kingdom come and beyond, he will be our God and he will be there to be our refuge. And in that, we should take great comfort. And this eternal God who transcends us in every way also holds the power over life and death. This is point number two, and that's the brevity of man. We'll see this in verses 3 through 10. The brevity of man. So I think it is natural for parents to want to protect their kids from the horrors of the world, right? I'm, I'm a parent, and I see that as probably a big part of being a parent, protecting your kids. But I have come to believe that there are some truths that we cannot and ought not shelter our kids from for very long. And death, I think, is one of those. And I'll tell you why. This is not just a hot take. I've thought about this. (laughs) I remember um, when I was a kid, I was maybe nine or ten, my mom had had a friend over, and this friend had brought her kid, and he was maybe five years old, and it was my job to, to play with this kid, you know, in the living room while the parents talked. You know how it is, older siblings, right? And I'm playing with this kid. We got a big box of toys, and we're getting stuff up, trying to figure out what does this guy want to do. And he picks up a toy out of there and pretends it's a gun, and he shoots me. And, you know, I'm really good at playing. So I fell down flat, you know? I said, you killed me. His mom was not happy. She came running into the room, and she said, get up, get up, get up, get up, to me. I'm like, what did I do wrong? And... She says through gritted teeth, we haven't told Billy about death yet. And I, never, I hadn't thought about that for a long time until I had my own kid and he started talking. <laughs> and he starts asking questions. And I remembered that event. And I remembered that. I remember thinking, should I talk to my kid about death? When do I do that? He's just little. But the subject of death just comes up naturally. We're squashing bugs. <laughs> We're in the woods. We come across a dead squirrel. People we know pass away. So what do you do? You say everything, everyone's just gone off to the farm? (laughs) (laughs) And at first I thought, maybe I should shelter him from this for as long as possible. Maybe I I should keep him from the knowledge of death, try to help him not understand that. But I came to a conclusion. How will I talk to my son about the gospel of Jesus Christ if he doesn't know about the reality of death? Because what is the gospel but that Christ came and Christ died for for the sins of his people? How can we understand it? How can we understand it without understanding death? And the truth is, like I said, there's no hiding for it for very long. Even with kids, the brevity of life will be felt by every creature sooner or later. The difference, the difference is in whether the living take it to heart or not. Whether we consider this reality of life a right. And so here, as we talk about the the brevity of life, Moses tells us to remember three things. And the first one is to remember who controls death. We see this in verses 3 through 6. He says, verse 3, You return man to dust and say, Return, O children of man. This is important to remember. God is in control. It's easy to say. It's hard to say when death comes. God's in control. That didn't just happen. It says he returns man to dust. 
1 Samuel 2.6, likewise, says the Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and he raises up. And even, even in this statement, Moses wrote, he returns man to dust. There's echoes of the first time man and dust is brought up way back in Genesis 3. Remember, God made the man from dust, from the earth itself. And in Genesis 3, after mankind sinned and Adam cursed or God cursed Adam's work. This is what he said in Genesis 3:19, "By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return." So I think Moses is bringing up this expression because he wants us thinking about where death came from and who controls it. Well, I hope you're enjoying this episode so far. I just wanted to pause real quick and tell you about my free newsletter, Reagan's Roundup. Every week I send out a roundup of links I found around the web that will be helpful to you on your journey to getting more done and getting it done like a Christian. Each issue also contains an original article from me. It's edifying, it's encouraging, it is practical stuff, and it's all rooted in the Word of God. So if you want to grab that, again, it's totally free. It's newsletter.redeemingproductivity.com. That's newsletter.redeemingproductivity.com to sign up for Reagan's Roundup. All right, let's get back into the episode. It goes on, verse 4, For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. And so here he kind of launches into these, this series of similes talking about what the brevity of life is like. What our earthly existence compared to God's eternality is like. Just how short is life? It's like a thousand years compared to a day. It's like a night watch. You've barely just begun and it's over. It's like the quickness of a flood. He talks about our days being swept away like a, with a flood. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, we were down in, in Belleville. There's a park there. And we were watching the, the air show from this park, Quirk Park. And they have a splash pad there. If you're not a parent, a splash pad is like a super sprinkler. <laughs> it's like all the just colorful stuff, water squirting out everywhere. Kids love it. This one's really cool because it's got a bucket in the middle of it, right in the middle of the splash pad, huge bucket, way up high, and it slowly fills up. And then about every 10, 15 minutes or so, it, it fills up enough that it naturally tips over and dumps out. And so the kids are watching it. You know, they're playing, but they're always eyeing it. How close is that thing to tipping? And when it gets close, they all gather under it like, you know, they're wanting the aliens to take them. <laughs> and so they're all, they're all waiting for it. And, you know, we're, we're in between the planes flying over, and I'm, I'm watching this thing's filling up, and all the kids run over. Mostly it's bigger kids, but this real little guy came running over there, and he does the same thing. <laughs> and the thing dumps over, and whoosh, all the kids are laughing and stuff. Then this kid's gone. <laughs> like, he's vanished. The aliens did take him. I look over and he's just been swept away. He was, he was fine. Kid's fine. But as I was studying this verse, I thought of that, about a flood. How quickly, whoosh, And that's how he compares our, our days. Is, is the older you get, the faster life seems to move. When you, when you look back on your life before, you're like, how quick was that? How quick was that? He says it's like a dream. You know, you wake up from a dream, and then it's, it's like you're just holding on to it. What happened? What happened? It's gone. Or like grass, he says, that it rises up in the morning, in the evening it withers. The point of all these similes, it's the same. He's saying life is brief. It's ephemeral. It's passing. We get this all throughout the scriptures in 2 Peter 3.8. Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. And elsewhere, our days are compared to other brief or short things. Psalm 39.5, behold, you have made my days a few hand breaths, and my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. Or James 4.14, yet you do not know what tomorrow bring, will bring. 
What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. And you go out and a couple of months from now it gets cold. You see your breath and it's gone. That's our lives. And you could see how that would be a little bit depressing if you didn't understand where it was all going. If you didn't understand who holds the keys to life and death. And if you didn't know him. But if you do know him, we'll see in a moment, it leads to wisdom. Another thing, we're still on the brevity of life. Another thing that Moses reminds us of is the reason for death. This is verses 7 through 8. Next, Moses reminds us to uh, think about why death exists. Why does death exist? We'll make it interactive. Why is there death? Sin. It's easy to forget that sometimes. Even as Christians, sometimes we'll say, it seems so pointless. It seems so pointless that so-and-so had to die. And it is sad. It's hard when people pass from us. But we always have to have in the back of our mind where this death thing came from and that it's our fault. It is not senseless. It's a punishment. Psalm 90, verse 7, For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. Why is life so brief? Because of man's sin. In Genesis, God tells the man that on the day he eats of the fruit of that tree, he shall surely die. And in fact, the reason there's death at all in the world is tied back to that. Um, We won't get into it now, but in Romans 8, it talks about how the creation itself was subjected to futility, not willingly, but unwillingly, because of our sin. So when you turn on that nature documentary and you see that gazelle being ripped apart by the lion, think, that's my fault. Verse 8, you have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. It's this reminder. He's, he's saying God sees all sin. God, God, mankind is under this penalty of death because of sin. And each of us as individuals are sinning constantly, and it's no secret to God. You may think you're hiding it well. God can see through walls. More than that, he can see through hearts. He can see past the mask we put up on Sundays. He can see past all of it. And we bear guilt for our sin before God. The Bible says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And that the wages of sin or the payment for that sin is death. And it would be enough if we were just talking about physical death But it's clear from the scriptures that it's not just physical death we're speaking of. The punishment befitting rebels against the eternal God of the universe is eternal death. It's talking about hell. And the truth is, as I mentioned earlier, that every person is immortal. We are a ray on that great graphing sheet headed off for eternity. All will rise again one day but not all to the same fate. John, flip over here actually with me. Flip over to John 5, uh, verse 26 and following. John chapter 5, verse 26 and following. This is Jesus speaking. John 5, 26 and following. He says, For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself, and he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Everyone will rise again. Everyone will meet Jesus. But that interaction is going to be different depending on one thing. Because we're all sinners. But the one difference maker is whether we have repented of our sins and trusted in Jesus Christ as our Savior. It's the only way. It's the only way. He is the way, he said of himself. 
The gospel, as we call it, is good news. That's what it means. It's the good news that though we are all under the penalty of death, and not just physical death, but eternal death, and though none of us could do anything about it, I can't just start being a better person today and somehow make up for all the sin in my past. Though I am stuck and helpless in and of myself, God himself made a way. God himself sent his son, Jesus Christ, He sent him to live that perfectly righteous life that I have failed utterly to live. He obeyed from his birth until his death perfectly God's law in everything, never sinned. He died on that cross to pay the penalty that I should be paying, that penalty of death. And three days later, he defeated death too on my behalf. The grave couldn't keep him in. And the amazing thing about the gospel, it's not just that these things happened because they did. It's that when I place my faith in Jesus Christ, I become united to him in a spiritual way, which makes me in the eyes of God the Father as though I had lived that perfectly righteous life and hadn't sinned, as though I had already paid that debt that he paid for me and such that I'm the recipient of, the beneficiary of eternal life, which he purchased. That's the good news of the gospel. If you repent of your sin, if you turn to Jesus Christ and you believe in him, bow your knee to him. He is the Lord. He's the king. And say, I'm a rebel. I'm sorry. I want to turn away from that. I want to follow you. He will justify you before God the Father. He will forgive you for your sins. And he will adopt you into his family. Rebels to children. If it sounds too good to to be true, that means you're starting to understand it. Because it is amazingly good news. It sounds too good to be true, but it is. It is. But even... If you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, the realities of this life, the the pain of this life, doesn't just magically go away. You know, you don't just graduate to like floating perfect life person. It's still hard. But understanding this, what death is about, how we can how the grave has been overcome by Jesus, it colors how we interpret the trials of life, doesn't it? It colors how we think about death changes how we think about life. And when I said earlier that, and strangely, if you think about death the way a Christian ought, it should give you hope, this is what I meant. The hope is that death isn't the end. It's not the end. If anything, it's the beginning. Death is the beginning of true life for those who've put their faith in Jesus Christ. But even as life is brief, it is also painful. And this is the last thing that, that Moses would remind us of under this, um, this heading of the brevity of life. We see this in verses 9 and 10. Remember the pain of life. Verse 9, for all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70 or even by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They're soon gone and we fly away. Even with the best of modern medicine, very few of us are going to live past 80. Some some will live into their hundreds. But beyond that, not much. And this is coming from a guy, Moses, who lived 120 years. And even he saw that as brief. And his point in sharing this thing about 70 or 80 years, he's saying like, "This this is the best we can really hope for. In, in the Hebrew, it's, it says uh, that their boast, the boast of our years is 70 or 80. Like it's bragging. Like the best our, our little lives could brag about, say, we can live to 70 or 80. That's pretty good. But it's measly. But one of the great encouragements we have as we hope for heaven is that day that we will rise immortal and, and when death will be no more. 
It says in 1 Corinthians 15, 26, that, that when Jesus returns, the last enemy, he's going to put all his enemies under his feet, and the last one to be destroyed is death. He's going to kill death, which is ironic. And we long for that day. Revelation 21.4. I think I read this last time. I'm going to read this every time I preach here. <laughs> Revelation 21.4. This is what we're looking forward to. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. <laughs> There's a day coming when that pain of death and that the pain of life will be gone. And for this reason, we hope, even in the midst of it, and we remember who controls death. It's God. We remember the reason for it. It's sin. And we remember that, yeah, there is pain in life, but it won't always be. It won't always be. And this is all because of Jesus Christ. Finally, and this is the, the last section here, Moses would have us consider what we can gain from such a reflection. You know, thinking about death, it's, it's literally the definition of morbid, I think. And my hope is that not to turn everybody emo here, but uh, that we would, we would think in it and gain the benefits from dwelling on death. And that's what Moses would have us do, even in this prayer. So part three, um, the beginning of wisdom. This is verses 11 through 17. The beginning of wisdom. What do we do knowing life is brief? What do you do with that information? Verse 11, who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you. It's kind of an odd verse. It's like asking God, who considers the power of his anger and his wrath according to the who who's, thinks about all these things about death and is scared of you? You think, well, that's kind of an interesting thing for him to say. But that doesn't sound all that different from a proverb you probably know, Proverbs 9.10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and knowledge of the Holy One is insight. In some ways, it almost feels like that, that well-known proverb is like a condensation of this entire psalm. It's about fearing the Lord. That's where wisdom begins. I think a lot of times, people can be a little bit confused. You bring up the idea of the fear of the Lord, and you're like, this is weird because aren't I supposed to love him? Like, you know, I'm like holding like arm's distance, but also trying to give him a hug. Like, how does this work? How do I fear the Lord? Well, it says at the beginning, it's the beginning of wisdom, um, it is real fear. It's not just respect. When the Bible talks about the fear of the Lord, it is, it's actual fear. And in this context, you can see why you would want to be a little afraid of God. He's the one who controls life and death, right? You would be an absolute fool to not be afraid of the one who controls life and death. He's not to be trifled with, but trembled before. Those who take God lightly are fools. Absolutely. Absolutely. But those who fear him are wise. It, it blows my mind when people will, will look at death and they'll look at pain in this world and they say, well, how could God be real if there's pain in this world and all that? Like, I, wouldn't, I don't love a God like that. I couldn't serve a God like that. It's like, my friend, you have not thought this through. You're saying if a God like that exists and there's pain, if, there, if God exists and there's pain in this world, you wouldn't serve him because there's pain in this world. He's the, he's the one who's in control of all of that. Is that someone to be trifled with? Is that someone to take lightly? Do you shake your fist at the sovereign king of the universe? You who your life is but a breath before him? The right response is terror. That's the beginning of wisdom is to consider our lives, consider all these things in the light of who God is according to the fear of him. Now, certainly, when we come near to God, especially through the, the gospel of Jesus Christ, when he has come near to us, that fear is, is, is tempered because he embraces us as family. Instead of standing in the way of his power, we are behind it. His wrath is not on us, so we don't fear him the same, in the same exact way. But if you want to start being wise, start by being scared. God is not to be trifled with. He's to be trembled before. And so this gives us the context for the next verse here, verse 12, which is probably the most well-known verse in this passage. 
So all this needs to be thought of in the context of fearing the Lord, His eternality, His power over life and death. Verse 12, so teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Moses is praying that God's people would learn to comprehend the brevity of life. That's what he means by teach us to number our days. He doesn't mean, you know, keep it a calendar. But to consider the brevity of life. Why? So that we may get a heart of wisdom. That's the result of thinking about the brevity of life. That's what we would hope it would be. The cool thing here is the word get a heart of wisdom is actually uh, usually used in the context of harvesting, harvesting crops. So the idea is like, He who comprehends the brevity of life will reap a harvest of wisdom. It's those who consider death, those who don't ignore it, consider it in the light of Scripture, who will become wise. What's that look like? Well, being eternally minded looks like longing for Christ's return. Psalm 90, verse 13, return, O Lord, how long have pity on your servants? In in the context, Moses is is wanting God's favor to return to them. But I think even generally, we could think about this for saints. We want God's, we want him to return. He want his favor. Um, There's echoes of this in Revelation 22, 20. Surely I'm coming soon. And And then John says, amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Those who comprehend the brevity of life exercise wisdom in praying and hoping and looking forward to the return of Christ. We understand this life isn't all there is. The passing pleasures of this life, that we can enjoy them as blessings from God, it's not the good stuff. We're waiting for the return of our King. What else does it look like, um, finding wisdom in the brevity of life? Well, it looks like seeking your joy from God and not just earthly things. Look at verse 14, satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love. You find your encouragement, you find your joy, you find your satisfaction through God's love. Why? That we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Even in the midst of the pain, even in the midst of the suffering, even in the midst of the trials, we can have joy if God would satisfy us. It looks like longing for the comforts of heaven, even in the midst of the despairs of life. Verse 15, make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us. For as many years as we have seen evil. It looks like praying for God's hand to intercede in the affairs of men, that we might find relief and deliverance, but more importantly, that God might glorify himself in the midst of our trials. Verse 16, let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. He's talking about God's mighty deeds. God wants, or Moses wants the people of Israel to see God's wonders again, to see his mighty works, to see him intercede on their behalf, and for their children too. And Christians as well, we're longing for, we're looking forward to the mighty works of God in the future. This story of ours, this life, this age, is not going to end in a whimper. It is going to end with a mighty work of God, with the blast of a trumpet, with a king clad in glory, returning for his people, with an army of angels at his side, the dead in Christ rising forth, that holy king riding out to battle arrayed in splendor. A mighty work of God will be seen in our life. The age of miracles is not something of the past. There's something we look forward to. The greatest work of God ever has yet to be seen when he returns And this world is turned upside down. I want to see that. I long for that day. Why? Because I consider the brevity of life. When you don't consider the brevity of life, you act like this is all there is. And so you get comfortable. And so we trust in money. Or we trust in whatever it is that that gives us temporal and fleeting pleasures. And like I said, it's okay to enjoy the things of life unto God's glory. See them as blessings. But that's not where your hope is. Your hope is in him who conquered death. And it's him we long to see him work his wonders again. The wisdom that comprehends the brevity of life does not approach life like the world does. We shouldn't look like everyone around us if we believe this stuff. But lastly, it means viewing our work 
with an eternal mindset. And like I said in the beginning, how you think about death has the biggest impact on how you live, and this even includes your work, what you do with your hands, what you do every day. This is not pie-in-the-sky stuff. Look at verse 17. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Moses ends his prayer on this poignant final note, which is talking about work, the work of our hands. He, 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 he takes his eyes off of the future, off of all of these grand things, and he returns to the here and now. How do I live in light of this? I pray for the Lord's favor, because that's what I need. We don't want to live lives of futility, but of fruitfulness, right? But we know that that only happens if the Lord establishes the work of our hands, if he makes it prosper. You can be the most clever person in the world. True fruitfulness in your work is going to come when you comprehend your work in the light of eternity and when you commit your ways to the Lord, all of it. Because even if you succeed in an earthly endeavor, if it is not blessed by God, you didn't bear fruit, you didn't do something that actually is going to last. I want to do work that doesn't fade but lasts. John 15, 16. Jesus says, you did not choose you, choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your, sh- and that your fruit should abide. It means last, live. I want to bear fruit in this life that God establishes. Yes, establish the work of my hands. Don't you? Do you want to live like this is a waiting room for heaven? Or do you want to live like this matters? Because it does. And understanding the coming joys of heaven, understanding how brief life is, should, ought to, and will. It'll impact how you work each day. So, life is indeed short, but eternity is long. It's very long. And the brevity of our life before an eternal God should inspire us to live lives of wisdom for his sake, for his glory, and for our joy. For more productivity from a Christian worldview, check out my weekly newsletter, Reagan's Roundup. Every Thursday, I share an insight along with the five best links I found that week that I think will help you in your journey to becoming a more productive Christian. It's totally free. Just go to newsletter.redeemingproductivity.com to sign up for Reagan's Roundup. That's newsletter.redeemingproductivity.com.